of the union it ought to be restored we ought to elect the house representatives which will vote its restoration if by any means we omit to do this what follows slavery may or may not be established in nebraska but whatever it be whether it be or not we shall have repudiated discarded from the councils of nation the spirit of compromise for who after all this will ever trust in national compromise the spirit of mutual concession the spirit which first gave us the constitution and has thrice saved the union we shall have strangled and cast from us forever. And what shall we in lieu of it? The South flourished with triumph and tempted to excess. The North betrayed, as they believe, broding on wrong and burn, burning for revenge. One side will provoke, the other will resent. One will taunt, the other defy. One aggress, the other retaliates. Already a few in the North defy all constitutional restraints, restrain the ex execution of the fugitive slave law, and even menace the institution of slavery in the states where it exists. All right, welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And that introductory uh, passage was from uh, Abraham Lincoln's speech uh, in Peoria on the Kansas and Nebraska Act. Um, so yeah, if you're just joining us, this podcast will continue my look at the writings of Abraham Lincoln. It's going to be an extended series where we're going to um, go through all his, writing, all his writings and speeches as collected in the Library of, of America, um, two-volume collection. In the first two episodes, we looked at Lincoln's early political career, his time in the, in the Illinois House of Representatives, and then we looked at his kind of evolution to national politics, first as kind of elector for, for Whig politicians, and then as uh, representative from Illinois in the House of Representatives during the crucial debate and aftermath of the of the Mexican War. So that's what we focused on in the previous episodes. We, we looked at kind of his early career as a Whig politician, his development as a, as a lawyer, and we talked a little bit about a few of his cases, and then, and then his kind of elevation into national politics, even if on a limited scale in, in the, the mid-1850s, or the, sorry, the late 1840s. Um, so this episode will will continue through the writings, you know, uh, looking at specifically the years 1849 to 1854. So this um, takes us really uh, after you know to the end of his first his his only term in in Congress, and and you know after that he kind of goes back to being a lawyer, and and really during these years he's basically focused on his legal career. Um, but it's in 1854 with the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which I'll review for you if you don't remember your history courses. And then his response to that kind of brings him back into international weak politics. So we're right on the crux of his, his return to, to kind of the national spotlight, or really becoming the center of national spotlight in 1858. Well, what I've been doing in these, these well, at least I, you know, for these early episodes about Lincoln, it's kind of going year by year, right? We won't be able to do that once we hit 1858, really, because, you know, you know, the, just the volume of documents we have to consider and look at grows so much more in those years. I, I think the documents from 1858 alone cover, I think, half of this, this volume. It's basically the Lincoln-Douglas debates are reprinted here, both sides, so that's, that's one reason it's, it's rather lengthy. I'm really looking forward to getting into those, because one thing I'm, I'm, I'm noticing especially now that I have kind of started reading the Lincoln-Douglas debates, is how much Lincoln really did just improve as a, as a speechwriter and a speaker, just how more interesting his writing is in 1858 than, than this earlier period. His speeches are, they're just more dry. I mean, they're, they, they kind of lack something that you see maybe starting with the House Divided speech and then his Senate-run speeches, and especially in, in 1860 with the, the was it the Cooper... Uh, what's the name of that speech? Uh, Cooper Union speech. That's what that's what it was. You know, it's his kind of oratory ability is, is significantly improved. These these early speeches are still still sort of dry and, and, and kind of technical and you know yeah they don't have that same kind of 
energy I think that you see in, in the Lincoln Douglas debates because those those are just fun to read I, I've noticed like it's not nothing nothing tedious about those at all but anyways um you know year by year we're gonna go through this and then this is gonna be I think the, the last episode where we cover a lot of time well next episode too is gonna be two and a half years but uh, this one um, five years almost well six years uh, so 1849, so this is a year after the Rev revolutions of 1848, and that, that has a big impact on, on American history in that it leads to all these exiles um, from Germany, in particular coming to the United States. And many of them do kind of get involved in abolitionist politics. They, they help introduce kind of communism to those traditions to the United States. And, you know, I'm of the position that this, this kind of idea of the labor the, the value of labor and the dignity of labor really is key to the sectional crisis. It's not just a debate over slavery, but really it's a debate about the meaning of labor and, the, uh, and the, the future of labor in America. And some of that has to be influenced by the, these, these immigrants. I think the Republican Party was in particular. Um, so, I, you know, some of that, this is all kind of worked out in Eric Foner's book, uh, Free, is it Free Men, Free Soil? Something I forget the whole name of it. So I think it's his first book. He, he's, of course, most famous for his book on Reconstruction, which is great. And you should really read that if you ever get the chance. Um, so that, 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 that's, you know, that's in the context. Now, I don't know, you know the numbers on when people move, but you know, these emigres coming, they're going to shape American politics. So they kind of move it more towards kind of labor radicalism. Of sorts. Certainly, we see that in the labor movement. So anyways, 1849, that's where this collection of essays and, and speeches and things begins. Lincoln is still at this point in the House of Representatives, um, finishing off his, his one term there. Um, and this whole period, uh, what's really at being debated was the, you know, the Mexican War and its consequences, right? And that all culminates in the Compromise of, of 1850. So Congress adjourns on March 4th. So Lincoln leaves. I think he actually, it's according to the chronology here, he stayed in Washington to do a, a Supreme Court case. Uh, he'd do some lawyering on March 7th and 8th, uh, a case that he lost. Um, then he goes back to Springfield and, and kind of just, he tries to stay in politics. He tries to get a political position and, and doesn't succeed in that. He tries to get a position in the general land office. I, I don't know why he was interested in that. But we talked about a little bit this in the last episode is that American democracy in this time, you know, it, there was a lot of party favors going on, right? Part of this was the rotation of candidates for high office, right? Like you'd serve a term in the House of Representatives. After that, you get a position, I guess, in like a land office or, or maybe go back to the local state house or something. And then you just kind of rotate around these politicians, so they all get their kind of their day in the day in the sun. And there's always jobs for everyone. That's that's kind of key, and that's how you get support, right? Because these people are going to go campaigning for your presidential elections. They're going to be electors, and that was a big job of the electors in those days was to kind of stump and campaign because the candidates themselves didn't do it as much as as they do now. Um, and that's just all kind of the workings of democracy um, at this time. Now Lincoln, he actually gets appointed governor of, of Oregon, of the Oregon Territory. He turns that down. I guess he doesn't want to leave Springfield. He wanted a job closer at home. So he was pushing for a job in the land office. Um, now, back to his to this final months in Congress. Um, the main issue that he was at the forefront of in 1848 in Congress is, is you know, the trying to, trying to get a, a law passed that would ban slavery in the District of Columbia, in, in the Capitol. Right? Now, we know, of course, the Compromise of 1848 50, which the next Congress takes on, um, was, you know, five major bills. One of those was the abolition of the slave trade in Washington, D.C., not slavery itself. That would wait, that wouldn't be till the Civil War breaks out that slavery is abolished in Washington, D.C. itself. You know, one, one place that Congress had clear authority to, to manage, you know, the, the whole debate of the territories is, is kind of what brings Lincoln into national prominence in the 1850s. Um, so the Compromise of 1850, as, as you know, you may remember, is you know there was kind of things that were pro-South and some things that were kind of more free soilish. So ending the slave trade in 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 Washington was one thing. California came in as a free state, so that was kind of the the handout to the to the 
to those northern free soil positions. On the other side, you had the strengthened fugitive slave law. Now, the other part of it was the Utah and New Mexico territories. So, you know, what would be the future of slavery in those those territories? And basically, it was it was opened up um, on, on on basically a local option, right? And the, the term for this at the time was was popular sovereignty. That was the term used by by especially Stephen Douglas and, and everyone talked about it at the time. Is is basically the settlers who go there. You know, there should basically Congress shouldn't interfere with slavery during the territorial period. If people want to bring in slaves, they can. Uh, and then when they make the Constitution, they vote, right? And and this was seen as um, basically a kind of a compromise vision. But it, it opened up slavery in the West. That, that was why it was kind of what the South wanted, what the slave states wanted, right? They wanted two extra, you know, two extra senators for each of those states. More That may have been more important than actually the extension of slavery itself. Um, although I, I don't know, you know, how... You know, had history been different, how much that region of the United States would have been, you know, a great place for slavery, uh, not, you know, the cotton economy, I, I, I kind of doubt it. But it, it opened them up to that, which gave something the South wanted. Now, does this undo the Missouri Compromise, right? Because remember, the Missouri Compromise line said, no, you know, future slave states will only be south of the line, right? But that only applied to Louisiana, Right. So that's why the Kansas Nebraska Act becomes important, because that really does undo the Missouri Compromise. Right. So one th idea was like, let's just extend that line to the Pacific. Right. That's not what really happens. What happens is the whole of the Utah and New Mexico territories were opened up to slavery on this principle of popular sovereignty. So, again, sorry for the history lesson, but, um, you know, you kind of have need to know that to, to, to fully appreciate what Lincoln's kind of return to politics in the mid 1850s was about. So anyways, um, Lincoln's not there for that compromise, right? He, instead, what he's pushing for at the end of his term is the exclusion of slavery from, um, from D.C. in particular, or the, just banning slavery in, in D.C. So he actually gives the proposal, and he, he presented it in Congress. It's about three pages long, and it's included in this collection. Essentially, what this law did would, would have would have been similar to what was done like in Pennsylvania and New York, which of course had a lot of slavery uh, at the time of the American Revolution. And it wasn't like New England where they could easily get rid of it. There was a lot of property in slaves, a lot of value there. And so compromise positions kind of worked out of grandfathering out slavery. And that's essentially what Lincoln proposes here for the District of Columbia. So basically anyone born um, after 1850 should be free but supported by the owners of the mothers, okay, or their heirs. So there was, they would have not been the slaves, but, you know, under like wards of their mother's owner, which I suppose would have made them like apprentices, which is, was, you know, a type of indentured servitude, certainly. So, but anyways, once they reach 18, they would have been emancipated from, from even that. Um, then... There's other provisions here to kind of quicken that transition. And the main way is basically there's an option for the government to buy the value of slaves and emancipate them. So to compensate slave owners for, for freeing their slaves or, or the heirs, right? If you, know, if you inherit slaves, you could do that. But there's, there's no clear provision to like, you know, like you can't inherit slaves, right? That would have sped up the, the thing. But there's like an option that government would just buy the slaves. Now, he also adds here a provision I don't know if he's the one who solely wrote this, maybe he wrote it with others, but basically kind of enforces the Fugitive Slave Act in Washington, D.C. Basically says that Congress will still, or the local authorities in Washington will still be responsible for the Fugitive Slave Law. So there's a few other things here, but this is like his last major effort at legislation, at least from the look of it in this, um, in this collection. So that's, you know, then in, in March he leaves Congress and goes back to Springfield. And we have a bunch of his letters here. A lot of them have to do with his opposition to the appointment of this guy named Butterfield to the position of commissioner of the General Land Office because he wanted the job, right? So he felt he needed a job after um, returning, assuming this principal rotation is kind of shifting jobs around. And he's, he kind of lobbies for his own position there against this other guy, Butterfield. And it, it's kind of snarky and back and forth letters. And if you're interested in that kind of thing, you can read them. I, I didn't find them particularly fascinating to read, but it's, it's an important event in his, his life, right? Because I think maybe that failure led him to kind of 
focus on lawyering for a while and he kind of t- doesn't he's not so political right he's going to be an, a, an elector for candidates which means he's going to stump he's going to give speeches for candidates but he's not really you know running for office for for a few years um so the other thing is interesting here is when he gets this job offer to you know essentially be the governor of oregon well at first he's going to be like the secretary and he turns it down and then he gets another offer to just be just be actually the 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 governor, you know, like the governor, not just the secretary of, of, of that territory. And he and he, he turns down both of those jobs. I guess he doesn't want to leave Springfield is the reason he turns it down. He doesn't really explain much in the letters. He just says, I, I'm not accepting it. So that, that's what happens to Lincoln in, in 1848, kind of an, uh, an important year and that kind of his return to private life and and return to to the Illinois. OK, 1850. Um, 1850, what happens in his life in 1850? Um, well, his third son was, was born. Um, he gives a eulogy for Zachary Taylor. Um, Zachary Taylor was elected after James Polk, uh, one of two Whig presidents up, up to that point. Uh, the first was Harrison. Both died <laughs> during their, their office. Um, Zachary Taylor died, and, and Lincoln gives a eulogy on it, a kind of a long um, summary. Now, I think that Taylor's an interesting position for, or an interesting figure for the Whigs, because they opposed, or most of them at least, opposed the, the Mexican War, especially the Northern Whigs, and the more free soil um, Whigs voted, uh, were opposed to the Mexican War, but Zachary Taylor, who becomes president for the Whigs, uh, for the, you know, the Whig Party candidate, and the, eventually the victor, he, you know, he was a hero of the war. And, and so Lincoln has to kind of talk about this in his eulogy for a, about a war he opposed. So it's, it's kind of, um, I don't want to say ironic he's doing his job as a, as a party man there, but um, this is something I, I thought about as I was reading it. Um, and um, he's mostly on the judicial circuit um, during this time. Like, again, you really see this kind of redirection of his life to, to, to the law. One thing I like that this book has are some of Lincoln's like handwritten notes and, and, and kind of notes to himself. I mean, the drafts of speeches are one thing. I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of interesting to do the drafts of the speeches, but, you know, we got the speech itself, but, you know, we got also his, just literally his notes kind of to himself on different topics, right? There's like a few just on slavery where he gives a little few thoughts here. Here he's got his notes on the practice of law, right? And at some point in 1850, he sat down, you know, and said, you know, this is what a good lawyer is, right? Point by point. That's about two pages long. And basically his, his rules of lawyering is like you, you know, you try to avoid litigation. You try to negotiate out of, uh, out of, you know, out of court, which of course many lawyers do. You think a lot of lawyering is done in court, you know, actually not that lot, it, lot is, right? It's mostly done behind the scenes. Yeah, he wrote, discourage litigation, persuade your neighbors to compromise whenever you can, point out to them how the nominal winner is often the real loser in fees and expenses and waste of time. As the peacemaker, the lawyer has a superior opportunity of being a good man. This will still, this will still be business enough. Never stir up litigation. A worse man can scarcely be found than one who does this. Who can be more nearly a fiend than one who habitually overhauls the registers of deeds in search of defects and titles wherever to serve up strife to put money in his pocket end quote you know he's talking this is the equivalent of like the ambulance chaser right the someone who goes to every accident you know to find fault and to drum up a lawsuit right he's he's kind of seeing that these people are just basically exploiting um conflict and and encouraging conflict in society whether it wouldn't be anyways, right? The, the image of the guy going through the, like the plat books trying to find out who was actually on whose land or something just to, to draw up uh, cases is, is who he's talking about here. Um, uh, you know, he talks also here about not charging clients exorbitant fees, right? Uh, trying to keep the cost of legal services down. So it's, it's a fairly moral document. And the fact that it's a private document, I think is significant. It's not for publication. If it was for publication, you could presume there's some spin going on there. But he, he seems to really believe in these basic principles. And I don't know enough about his law career. I, it's been a while since I read a biography of Lincoln. And if I, when I did, I skipped those sections uh, because they weren't that interesting to me. Um, but you know, if, if you're interested in that, I think there's a lot in this collection that can kind of let you get a window into his, his legal career. It's not much of the book, but 
there, there's a lot here. Like we don't have his, a lot of his cases, his you know the actual speeches he goes before juries and things. Uh, we know about these cases in the in the chronology at the end of the at the end of the book, but you know they they didn't include a lot of them. But we do have some windows into it into this part of his life. Um, so what else in 1850? Yeah, just one other document I think is really important from 1850 here, and that is his eulogy for Zachary Taylor. Uh, it, I think it's more important just as, as, a, as a statement about Zachary Taylor by a, a local Whig politician than like a brilliant document in its own right. I mean, it is, it is politics. It's, it's a political document. So he starts out with the, the, the conqueror, right? That's the narrative. That's the memory of Zachary Taylor is as the conqueror in the Mexican War. Uh, he actually goes back to the, the his beginning of his military career during the War of 1812 and his other military service before that, and then um, the Mexican War. But here's the way he frames it, because this is a problem. The, the Whigs, the Northern Whigs anyways, oppose the war. So what, what to make of this person? Um, and what, basically what Lincoln focuses in here on is the valor and the skill and him as a commander. Um, but he does add here very specifically, in obedience to orders on March 1846, he planted his troops on the Rio Grande opposite Matamore. Soon after this and near this place, a small department of General Taylor's forces under Captain Thornton was cut to pieces by a party of Mexicans. Opening, open hostilities being thus commenced and General Taylor being constantly menaced by Mexican forces vastly superior to his own. In number, his position became exceedingly critical. Now, the way I read this is he's saying like, um, he was on the opposite side of the Matamores. He was on Mexico's territory, right? Because this, this was a big thing he pushed for in, while he was in Congress was the, the spot resolutions, which are basically forcing President Polk to prove that the fighting began on, on at least Texan soil, if, if not American soil. Of course, it, it happened on, on well into Mexican territory, right? Um, areas claimed by the state of Texas, but, but certainly disputed by, by Mexico. Um, so he, you know, he, he admits here that it's not like Taylor's fault. <laughs> that, I think that's what he's saying here. Um, so he focuses in on his, his skills of, as a commander. Then he moves on to his kind of his moral characters, right? And of course, he's a, he's a great man. He's generous. He's not prone to anger. He's virtuous. Um, you know, he served the public need, all that. He writes at the end, nor can I help thinking that the American people in electing General Taylor to the presidency, thereby showing their high appreciation of his sterling but unobtrusive qualities, did their country a service and themselves an imperishable honor. It is much for the young to know that treading the hard path of duty as he trod it will be noticed and will lead to high places. But he's gone. The conqueror is at last conquered. The fruits of his labor, his name, his memory and example are all that is left us. His example, verifying the great truth that he hath humbled himself, shall be exalted teaching. That to serve one's country with singleness of purpose gives assurance that the country's gratitude secures its best honors and makes dying beds soft as downy pillows are. The death of the late president may not be without its use in reminding us that we too will die. And then he goes on with that kind of pathos about that. And he ends up with a poem. So a nice, nice eulogy, of course. He's saying all the great things about President uh, Taylor. So um, what does people know about President Zachary Taylor? Anything? Uh, you know, I've studied American history for quite a long time, and I can't say too much except that he was a Whig. So I, I guess it's the Compromise of 1850 is, is his, his legacy, as it were. I look at the historical rankings of presidents, and he doesn't do too bad. He's, he's in the... The, the mid-20s to, to mid-30s. Uh, so the lower half, anyways, in terms of all these, uh, the aggregate of these presidential rankings. You know, it's not like Buchanan or, or Pierce. These people are, are consistently seen as the worst here. Warren Harding's down there, too. Um, but, yeah, you know, the Compromise of 1850 was really the most important um, factor in his, his in his presidency it's not something though that Lincoln really says too much about in his eulogy here he basically talks about his military career and his his virtues if you will 
Okay, uh, 1851. Not too much to say about 1851, uh, about his life. Uh, basically, that the major thing that happens to Lincoln is his father dies, and he's got to deal with the death of his father with his, with his family, like his brother-in-law and others. And there's a few letters collected here, not that many, but a few talking about the aftermath of, of his death and what, his father's death. And one of the things he has to concern himself with is like his mother's pension or things. So the guy he's he's writing to a lot on this is, is John D. Johnston, who is, sorry, I said brother-in-law, it's his stepbrother. Stepbrother is, is, is John D. D. Johnson. Um, so he's, you know, trying to um, basically get him to promise some land that his, mother can stay on and and guarantee at least an, an income and he's quite insistent on, on at least $30 a year um, as as what she can live on right and so she's gonna need lands that can provide that kind of income and that's the main thing he's worried about after the death of his father he, he can't he's not able to come he gets the notice that his father is is is, is dying and um, he writes a letter in January 12th 1851 basically saying he, he can't really leave home um, at the time, he's got business, uh, his wife is sick, things like that. So um, that's that. Um, that's really all there is to say about 1851. Um, 1852, though, um, it's, a, it's a bigger year for, for Lincoln politically um, in that we have, well, we have the death of Henry Clay, and he writes another eulogy for another kind of important Whig politician, right? So president, someone who ran for president, someone who is kind of the cornerstone of the American system, which was the basic, the, the core of the Whig policy. Um, and then you got the, the campaign for Winfield Scott, the 1852 campaign, the last time the Whigs would run uh, a presidential candidate. And this Winfield Scott, another, another Mexican war hero. So they kind of pull off that, old, that same trick, right? Uh, that they do with Taylor in 1850, 1848. Um, so he's an old Whig elector for, for Scott, and he, of course, uh, supports Winfield Scott and um, and stumps for him. So he got uh, a very long speech, a very long kind of boring speech to a, like a, it's called the Scott Club, which is basically a local organization organized for the, you know, the, the Whig Party. So these are the two things we want to look at at, at 1852. That is this eulogy for Henry Clay and the speech to the Scott, Scott Club. So first with the, the eulogy, well, Henry Clay, again, is really the father of this, this American system, right, which is basically the Whig policies. I talked about that in the first episode in this series, what those kind of Whig principles are. But there are things like a tariff, promoting internal protectionism to pr promote domestic industry, like the Hamiltonian uh, approach to it. But it, it's more democratic than maybe the Federalist approach. If you remember from the uh, Jefferson series, we, we talked about that kind of growing rift between <clears throat> what Jefferson called like the aristocratic branch. That's that's kind of purged from the, the Whig party. Um, but you still have that principle of, of like national banks, national institutions, internal improvements, and, and a tariff to promote industry. That's the cornerstone of Whig policies. Now, notice with me that, you know, when we think about the debates of the 1850s, all going to be about slavery in the territories and, and, and sectionalism, sectional conflict. Before that, you know, th there are people north and south who agree by, with those principles uh, and the American system. And there were the cotton Whigs, you know, southern Whigs who, you know, maybe many were slaveholders that basically believed in this. In fact, Henry Clay himself was a slaveholder. And that's, that's um, you know, an issue with his legacy, of course. We could also say Henry Clay was instrumental in the Compromise of, of 1850, uh, which, of course, opened up slavery in the West as well. But again, it's like the goal there is like national unity, nationalism, if we will. So that's one way we can think about the American system is kind of a, this nationalism over, over sectionalism and state um, states' rights, if you will. And, you know, this, this kind of improving, like industrializing the country through internal improvements and protectionism. Now, one key thing here is, I think one thing that impressed Lincoln thinking about the career of Henry Clay. It's just, it's, it's, it's breadth and it's length. 
he, he points out that you know, he really enters politics in 1803, you know, not that long after the, the revolution, right? Jefferson's still president. That's when he um, begins his political career, right? And it's going to last for 50 years. So he was in politics for 50 years. And there's a few, few people who have had such a, like a impact on, on American democracy and its development. Than, than, than Henry Clay, and then he goes through like the different crises he faced, all the way back to the Missouri Compromise, right? That he was there at the Missouri Compromise, the nullification crisis, the, the Mexican War, and the Compromise of, of 1850. Now, he, he's, you know, he, he's a bit mixed about Clay, because he, he does think that Clay erred at times on, on certain positions, right? I, I think he's not a big fan of the Compromise of 1850 at all. He, he barely talks about that in this in this eulogy. Um, but he, he does talk about Clay, though, being an advocate of liberty and democracy, but at the same time of, of standing for certain principles when they weren't popular, right? He writes, after the settlement of the Missouri question, although a portion of the American people have differed with Mr. Clay and a majority even appear generally to have been opposed to him on questions of ordinary administrations, he seems constantly to have been regarded by all as the man of, of the crisis. Accordingly, in the days of nullification, and more recently, in the reappearance of the slavery question, connected with our territory newly acquired from Mexico, the task of devising a mode of adjustment seems to have been cast upon Mr. Clay by common consent, and his performance of the task in each case was little else than a literal fulfillment of public expectation. So he's the, the consummate public servant, servant. That's the argument here. He also talks about Clay's foreign policy positions and his support of liberty abroad, which is interesting, especially in Latin America and even Greece. And that's something I don't know that much about, can't comment on as to what degree did, did what role did Clay play in the, in the independence of the Greeks, um, which was that 18, I think it was 1830 that, that happened, the independence of the Greeks from the, from the Ottoman Empire. Now, on the slavery question, that's, that's uh, key here. He talks a little bit about Clay's support of, of colonization, right? Which is, I think, still Lincoln's position. Even quite late, this seems to be Lincoln's position. And we'll come back to that with the Lincoln-Douglas debates, where he, he really cast doubt whether black people can be part of, of, of after emancipation, be part of civil society. You know, and if you believe that, then the, the position, position of people who believe that slavery was wrong and should be ended, but there's no place for black people in civil society, tended to be colonizationists, right? The people who say, we, we set up a country in Africa for these former slaves. And he, he talks a little bit about that. But more, more troubling, of course, is, is Clay's position in a weak party that's becoming more free soil, uh, more sectional, eventually so sectional it, it can't even survive as a national party. And and a new party takes over, replaces it. It's, you know, the fact that Clay was a slaveholder and, and a compromiser with, with slaveholders. Now here's his pirouette on that. Um, Having been led to allude to domestic slavery so frequently already, I'm unwilling to close without referencing more particularly to Mr. Clay's views and conduct in regard to it. He was ever on principle and in feeling opposed to slavery. The very earliest, one of the latest public efforts of his life, separated by a period of more than 50 years, were both made in favor of the gradual emancipation of the slaves in Kentucky. He did not perceive that on a question of human rights, the Negro was to be accepted from the human race. And yet Mr. Clay was an owner of slaves. Cast into life where slavery was already widely spread and deeply seeded, he did not perceive, as I think no wise man has perceived, how it could all at once be eradicated without producing a greater evil, even to the cause of human liberty itself. His feelings and his judgment, therefore, ever led him to oppose both extremes of opinions on the subject. And he, he kind of talks in those terms, right? That, you know, Clay as the as the man of the times, right? The public service of the time of, of of the moment, and that moment being that fifty-year period where American democracy was 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 codified in the midst of various major disagreements about what that would be, whether it be slave or free, whether it would be nationalist or, 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 or confederate or, or whatever. So uh, that's, I think that's the main theme of his eulogy here is just that, that Clay was, was for 50 years uh, such a central figure in American politics um, that he, he really was the, the man of the hour. Um, that, it's kind of it's an interesting speech. I, I do urge you to, to take a look at it if you're, if you're interested at all in politics of this period. 
Less interesting, I think, is the is the speech in support of Winfield Scott. It's quite long. That's the first thing. It's not good. I mean, it's this speech must have took. Does he give it all in just one day? Yeah, it's it's actually he gives it in two days. Um, the speech of Scott, August fourteen, August twenty sixth, eighteen fifty two. So he has to do it over two days. That's how long the speech is. It's probably two hours, one hour each time. Um, now the Lincoln Douglas debates were what three hours each. Um, but it's like broken up with different speakers, you know, back and forth. This, and, and General Scott's just not, I don't know, he doesn't seem as down with him as he did with like Zachary Taylor. I don't know what that is. It's, it's very much a, just a, a speech in defense of basic weak principles. So it's a defense of weak principles, but it's also a lot about why why Scott is is the candidate, right? And he, he seems, there's a lot of ennui here, actually, in that the parties have become increasingly sectional, sectional in, their, in their loyalties, and, and it, it's sectional conflict is becoming the political conversation of the day, not the overall we, we, you know, Whiggish positions so much. He writes, or he said at the speech, but according to the judge's view, Scott's nomination was not only forced upon the South, but was forced upon it on a sectional issue. Now, what he's saying here is there, there was some other guy, a, a judge. What's his name? This is the guy Lincoln's responding to. Basically thinks that the Whig Party is moving kind of to a free soil, overtly a free soil position. And, and then Scott, as a candidate, was kind of forced upon Southern Whigs who didn't want him. Right? Which, which may have been true. I don't know. But uh, moving on, so forced upon it on a sectional issue. Now, in point of fact, at the time the nomination was made, there was no issue except as to who should be the man to lead the campaign upon a set of principles previously put into writing and acquiesced to by the entire convention. And these principles, too, being precisely such as the South demanded. Um, so he, he kind of says, well, that's not really true that it was forced upon him. But it, it runs through this document as this, this need, this feeling of need to, to sell Scott to the entirety of the Whig Party. And you really see in this document, I think, the Whig, Whig Party beginning to fracture. Um, and, and of course, this is the last time they're going to run a, a national, a candidate for, for national high office. And then there, there's conversations on different political issues. But one of the more interesting ones, something I didn't really know about, was the killing of some Americans in Cuba, which, which took place. So there's some foreign policy conversations. I, I don't think that's really Lincoln's strong point, at least not at this point in his, his career. But he just addressed this. And he, Lincoln's position here, and I'm assuming he's parroting Scott's position, um, is that this was the fault of it. I'm supposing some people were saying this, there should be a war, right? Like American honor was insulted or some way by, by in Cuba, right? Um, by the Spanish, Spanish subject, right? It's still the Spanish government that's controlling Cuba at the time. But Lincoln says, well, this is, these were Americans who went abroad. They, they, you know, gave up certain rights they had in America to live there. And yeah, it's barbarous, it's horrible what happened to them, but it's, it's not like a Kasai Bali. It's not a justification for war. And so it's kind of an anti-war position, anti-even empire position. But, you know, it's, it's interesting. I knew a little bit about the push for like, buying Santo Domingo in the, in the, or the Dominican Republic in the, who's in the, like the grand years. But I didn't know that there was this, this, this issue that, that this foreign policy crisis over Cuba in, in 1852. But yeah, I'm not feeling this document. I'm just, maybe I just have no interest in, 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 in Winfield Scott at all as, as a candidate for president. I was just kind of making sure there wasn't anything else here. Uh, actually, the judge he's talking about here is, is, is Douglas. So, judge Douglas. I don't think Stephen Douglas was a judge ever, so I don't know if that's who he's talking about. He was a senator at the time, right? He did try to get the nomination for the Democratic Party in this particular election and failed. So, I actually don't, to be honest, I don't know who this Judge Douglas he's talking about is. And I'm not going to look it up. If anyone knows, they can send it to me. Maybe it is Stephen Douglas. Seems he always is involved with Lincoln's life, um, one way or another. 
All right, that's, that's it for 1852. Uh, 1853, really n nothing to say about 1853. No documents I want to look at. Uh, he's just... Uh, Tad is born, his, his other son. Uh, he prosecutes a rape case. Uh, so he was a prosecutor for a brief period of time. And he heard a case about railroads uh, and federal tax exemption for railroads, which um, seems to be important. I mean, there's a couple cases here which are about railroads that Lincoln was involved with that, and of course, Lincoln as a Whig was interested in uh, infrastructure and internal improvements. But he seemed to be key, at least locally, um, in, in helping win cases that raised the power of the railroads. I think one, I, th I think we're going to have to talk about it in the next episode, because I think that's when it takes place, is there was a conflict between a, a railroad bridge and a steamboat. And I think the steamboat was damaged by the bridge. And then there was a conflict over, do railroad companies have a right just to build these bridges? And interfere with the steamboat traffic, right? And the decision ends up being, you know, to the favor of the of the railroads, which of course would have been dev was was devastating for the for the steamboats. Not just in that they, they, they lost that case, but the the power of railroads in in post Civil War America is such a key part of American industrial history. Uh, it really can't be understated. Um, but really, no documents I want to talk about in 1853. And this brings us to the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which is the key issue of 1854. Um, now, of course, the story of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, if you forgot, is back to our good friend Stephen Douglas. He basically traded Southern votes for a transcontinental railroad, kind of an internal improvement, something Whigs would have supported um, for you know, for this Kansas-Nebraska Act that the South wanted. And all, basically what this law did is it, it took that same principle of popular sovereignty that was used in the, in the Compromise of 1850 in those in Utah and New Mexico and applied it to areas already decided by the Missouri Compromise, right? The Missouri Compromise line basically allowed Arkansas to enter as a slave state, but no other states in the Louisiana Territory to be entered into. I mean, Lincoln's going to go through this history step by step in the Cooper who, um, I forgot it again, <laughs> the Cooper Union speech, right? But the, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, because at this point, Congress already said, north of this line, no slavery, right? Um, basically just allowing one state to enter in, one future state in the West to be entered. At that point, they didn't have the, 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 the land stolen from Mexico. So it kind of solved, the, it, for a long time, the Missouri Compromise seemed to solve the, the problem of, of slavery in the West, right? And, and of course, Lincoln's position in all this is Congress has always been interfering with the right to own slaves in the West, all the way back before the Constitution, right? And that, and the thing you can always go back to in this, in this case, and Lincoln does this a lot, is to the the Northwest Ordinances, right? That still passed during the Articles of Confederation, one of the last legislation passed by that, and one of the most important, basically created the plan for settling. The Northwest, right? That became the model in other places as well. So it created like up to maybe, I think it was like five to seven or four to seven states in that area. Eventually there'd be five, right? Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, and Michigan. But it really clearly stated no slavery there. There wouldn't, slavery was not going to be allowed. And that was by Congress. It wasn't, wasn't by popular sovereignty. So it wasn't even an option for them. So, you know, the idea that this is some new thing for Congress to, to kind of interfere with the Missouri Compromise. It's not true, and Lincoln's absolutely right about that um, in terms of politics and history. Now, Douglas, he's, he thinks it's popular sovereignty. He, try, he argues that this is essentially a more democratic thing. It, it gives hands control to the people, and it can forestall conflict. It can kind of manage this system. Um, you know, We're going to get into his position in more detail at the, in the Lincoln-Douglas debates, but this passes. The Kansas-Nebraska passes, right? So now the territories of Kansas and Nebraska, potentially other territories as well, uh, you know, we're going to be open to slavery on the principle of popular sovereignty, right? And that leads, of course, to migration of free soil settlers, slaveholding settlers, and eventually fighting and the rise of John Brown and all these key events leading to the American Civil War. So um, that's the key event of 1854, and it helps bring Lincoln kind of back into national politics. He's, he's sort of doing this as, a, as an elector. 
and campaigning for these weak politicians. But um, things changed in 1854. And of course, the biggest outcome of that in the short term was the destruction of the Whig Party and the, the rise of the Republican Party. Um, as for documents here, we have two notes, two more fragments, two more um, like notes he jotted down for himself, one on government and one on slavery. And they're both, I think, really nice summaries of, of Lincoln's positions on these things. He writes on government, the legitimate object of government is to do for the community of people whatever they need to have done, but cannot do at all or cannot so well for themselves in the separate or individual capacities. Um, a great um, summation of, of why we have society, why we have civil societies, whether that's framed in government or, I mean, anarchists, of course, don't want states in the way we think of them, but certainly they would agree with this principle that there, there has to be some means for communities, for people to, to collectively do things that individually they can't do, right? And what sort of irks me like in this conversation about climate change these days is this insistence, the, the kind of the liberal middle of the ground insistence that what we really need is kind of individual change, right? If you, if you use renewable or reusable shopping bags, or you buy a Tesla, which most people can't afford to buy, or you put solar panels on your house, which most people can't do, can't afford to do. Most people can't even like take vacations anymore. It's, it's, it's pathetic much less revamp their house into a green grid, right? That has to be done collectively in some way, right? And the means we have for doing that right now are this, is the state, right? So this is the argument for something like a Green New Deal, right? Because the transition away from fossil fuels can't be individual. It's impossible to be done individually. And I think it just kind of develops on this, this point um, about the, basically the role of, of, of government. And he talks a little bit about rights and injustice and, and, and those things too, you know, creating kind of a level playing field for all people. Um, but an, a nice document there. You could tell he's maybe thinking about what his political position is as in this crisis period. The other one, the other fragment is, is called a fragment on slavery. And we can kind of read most of this actually. If A can prove however conclusively that he may in right enslave B, why may not B enslave the same you snatch the same argument and prove equally that he may enslave A. You say A is white and B is black. It is color then, the lighter having the right to enslave the darker. Take care. By this rule, you are to be slave of the first man you meet with a fairer skin than your own. You do not mean color exactly. You mean whites are intellectually superior to blacks and therefore have a right to enslave them. Take care again. By this rule, you are free to, you, you are to be the slave of the first man you meet with an intelligence superior to your own. But you say it's a question of interest and that you can make it your interest. You have the right to enslave others. Very well. If he can make it his interest, he has the right to ensnare, slave you. And of course, taking this argument that basically all the justifications for slavery can be turned around on you um, to, to make you a slave, you know, to the sectional crisis, right? The fear in the North by free soilers, abolitionists, and just people who maybe weren't uh, in that position, but didn't like the idea that slavery creeping into the North, right? Well, you know, that, that's this anxiety about slavery. I think this is what Lincoln's getting at with the half slave, half free. It's not sustainable, right? Once you have this contradiction in, in, in democracy, it, it really, it's gonna come back on you in some way, right? Maybe not exactly the way he's talking about here, but in, in some way there's this blowback from, from these injustices. All right, so now we come to a kind of the climax of, of this episode, or what I intended to be the climax of this episode. But it ends up we're not gonna have that much time to talk about it. I don't wanna um, go on all day about this. But that's his speech on the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Um, a pretty major speech. Again, it's, it's over an hour long if you were to, to read it. Um, it's, it's a pretty good speech. It's a good uh, summation of his position. He begins with, uh, this idea is something he's going to reuse throughout the Lincoln-Douglas debates and in his presidential campaign is the origin of restrictions on slavery. Is that There is precedent here for government in, in restricting slavery to certain areas. He actually goes back to Jefferson, right? A slaveholder, um, someone who, as we studied in the previous series, had very, very troublesome um, attitudes about race. But even he supported the this Northwest Ordinance, right? 
right? So, quote, thus it was with the author of the Declaration of Independence, the policy of prohibiting slavery in the new territories originated. Thus, thus, a way back of the Constitution, in the pure, fresh, free breath of the Revolution, the state of Virginia and the National Congress put that policy in practice. And quote. What he means here by Virginia putting it in practice is, of course, Virginia surrendered that land, that much of it became the Northwest Territory. So Virginia was essentially a slave state um, accepting a future uh, in the Northwest where there wouldn't be slavery. And Link, uh, or Jefferson being the central, the core politician from Virginia at the time, you know, backed that. And, and we talked about his, his role in forming that, that, that law. Uh, then he talks about the Missouri Compromise and then up to the, the Compromise of 1850. And then how the Kansas-Nebraska Act undoes that. And he really thinks the problem of, of ending the Missouri Compromise is the Missouri Compromise essentially solved the problem, right? And to undo it is to, is to basically shatter national unity for a short-term benefit. He's actually able to go back to Henry Clay here and, and kind of honor him and say, see, you know, you're undoing the legacy of Henry Clay of all, of all people. Talks a little bit about the Wilmot Proviso, but essentially the point here is that there's a history of of government regulating, you know, slavery in the territories. It's it's not new, and it, you know, you know, it was Congress that decided California would enter as a slave as a free state, wasn't it? Um, Congress decides how these when these states enter. They you create a constitution, there's a process for it, and it's a. Um, but there it is. Even I think it's I think actually in the Cooper Union speech he goes through the history of why did Alabama and Mississippi and these states enter as slave states, right? That there's actually a reason for it, and it was in dialogue with Congress. It wasn't just because they were Southern that they got to go in as as slave states. You know that's the heart of of his opposition to the Kansas Nebraska Act. Um, there's a little interesting passage here where he talks about human control over. Over environment, in a way, and um, basically, some of the supporters of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, and I think he's talking about Stephen Douglas here, said things like, "Well, we're we're doing this, we're opening up the popular sovereignty, but it doesn't really matter because the climate here is not right for slavery." It's kind of what I said that before about Utah, New Mexico. I don't know, um, but I had heard somewhere that California grows more cotton than any other state now. So, you know. you know, California would have probably been a prosperous slave state had it been allowed to 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 have slavery in his early days. Um, instead, gold miners came over, right, instead of slavers. So anyways, um, you know, Lincoln says, no, that's not true because humans shape the environment, right? And it's the institutions and the values and the attitudes that matter more than the environment itself, right? The, yeah, the environment can might not be what you expect based on where, how slavery exists now, but I suppose you could say the same thing about like Virginia at the time of the revolution. That's where the center of slavery was in 1800, was in Virginia. It moved west by, by 1860, right, to a different environment, different climate, different crops, right? Humans make environments more than just environments determinative. So it's, it's rejecting kind of environmental determinism about the future of slavery, which I think is an important point, um, you know. You know, who knows what slavery would have looked like in those in in New Mexico or 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 Arizona or, or these or Utah had it been allowed to take root there. Um, now he mentions here one last thing I want to say about this document is that he mentions these something he calls lullabies, right? And of course, a lullaby is a kind of way of soothing people to sleep, right? And he warns about. Um, certain lullabies that are kind of platitudes, essentially, that are being shouted around politically that he thinks are very dangerous or will put us to sleep from the real problem. One of these is kind of really the heart of his lullaby is the, the lullaby of sovereignty, right? And he thinks this is, a, this is hypocritical when you're talking about slavery in the first place, right? It's whatever value sovereignty may have, it doesn't make any sense when you're talking about slavery. Quote, I've quoted so much at this time merely to show that according to our ancient faith, the just powers of government are derived from the consent of the governed. Now the relation of masters to slave is pro tanto in total violation of this principle. The master not only governs a slave without his consent, but he governs him with a set of rules altogether different from those which he prescribes for himself. 
allow all the governed and equal voice in government, and that is, and it only is self-government. Another sort of lullaby he talks about is this this idea. Well, you're just moving, you're just shifting the slaves around, right? That all, all you know. So we have slavery in Arizona or Kansas or something. It doesn't matter because you're just taking slaves from one part to somewhere else. And he says that doesn't make any sense, right? Obviously, these slaves are gonna there's gonna be more slaves in the long term if you expand the territorial reach of it, right? Um, if you have less areas with slaves, you're gonna have fewer slaves in the in long term, right? It's you know, the reverse certainly wouldn't be true if you just said, we'll only allow slavery in, in one state, right? In, in Florida, right? You move all the slaves to Florida, right? That would probably in the long term shrink the slave population because could one state have sustained that large number of slaves, right? Conversely, if you open up more territory, people are going to move there and those slaves are going to have children and they're going to buy more slaves and all that. So, you know, what happened with uh, the internal slave trade was you know, most of the center of slavery was in Virginia at the time of the American Revolution, and many slaves moved out. But I don't think the overall population of slaves decreased. I think it actually went up a little bit. I think it was like 400,000 at the time, of, like in 1800, and it was like 460,000 at the time of the Civil War. And that's despite many slaves being moved to the South and Virginia's economy changing and becoming more diversified. So yeah, he's right here, that this idea of just moving slaves around and, and not increasing the overall amount is, 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 is nonsense. Um, not with growing populations in the Americas overall. Um, what else does he have here? He, um, the lullabies are interesting. He goes through a few things where he says, oh, these are really meant to soothe us. They're platitudes meant to soothe us, uh, to gaslight us essentially, is what people might say now. Um, and he talks a little bit about the future of the runaway slave law as well here in his opinion about it. And I, I think his position on here is this is a clear example of, of the federal government, you know, managing and, and regulating slavery. So the argument that you, the federal government can't do that is thrown out the window by the fugitive slave law it, it's, it's itself. Um, what else here? Oh, he does make the case though, an assertive case, and this is the last thing I want to say here. He makes an assertive case that the West should be for poor people. Um, quote, whether slavery shall go into Nebraska or other new territories is not a matter of exclusive concern of the people who may go there. The whole nation is interested in that best use shall be made of these territories. We want them for the homes of free white people. This cannot be to any considerable extent if slavery should be planted within them. Slave states are places for poor white people to remove from, not to remove to. New free states are the places for poor people to go to and better their conditions. For this use, the nation needs these territories. Um, he certainly makes that case in other places, but I don't remember it in what I've read so far, it being this explicitly stated, that um, the West is for, for poor people to move to and, and, and kind of rebuild you know, the new society, a commonwealth of labor or something. Um, so anyways, uh, that's it. So it's been a long episode. So thanks for bearing with me as I go through these important years in, in Lincoln's life. Um, the key events, of course, are the Compromise of 1850 and the Kansas-Nebraska Act and, and, and what that meant for laying the groundwork for the sectional crisis that would thrust Lincoln onto the national stage. Um, so in the next episode, we'll be looking at 1855 to the summer of 1858 and then, um, and then a for a while we'll be in 1858 because we have so many documents from the Senate run. Um, basically, I think 400 pages or so from 1858 alone, half this volume is consisting essentially of the, of the Lincoln-Douglas debates. But we're not quite there yet. So uh, 1855 to 18, um, 1850, 1854 to 1858. Um, well, what's the key document here? Well, um, well, read through them. If you have these documents, you can look through them. If you don't, Maybe you could, if you're following along, you can review the House Divided speech and review the Republican Party and the origin of the Republican Party. Of course, Lincoln joins the Republican Party. And the Dred Scott decision is going to give comments on that, too. And he gave a speech on the Dred Scott decision. Um, so that'll be it. Next time, I will give you my thoughts on those documents, in particular, Dred Scott, Lincoln's views on Dred Scott and, um, and his House Divided speech. And that's going to set us up for the, the Lincoln-Douglas debates. So anyways, I probably got a lot of this wrong, or I, you know, I'm not an expert of Lincoln. 
uh, if I misinterpreted something or, or or spun it the wrong way, let me know. Give your thoughts to me uh, in an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com or you can just leave your comments below. Um, but in the meantime, uh, I'll see you next time. Um, I'm looking forward to talking about um, this next period of Lincoln's life with you. Thanks for listening. Church and statesman here.